I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. T.A. Frank. He's the editor of Socolo Public Square. Previously, he was an editor for the Washington Monthly and a correspondent for the New Republic. He has also contributed to publications including the New York Times Magazine, the American Prospect, and the Christian Science Monitor. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. T.A. Frank. All right. Uh, thank you. Our guest tonight, uh, Matthew Guerreri, is a music critic for the Boston Globe. His articles have also appeared in Vanity Fair, New Music Box, Playbill, and Slate. He's also responsible for the popular classic music blog, Soho the Dog. And you live in Framingham, Massachusetts, which is how far outside of Boston? Uh, about 12 miles. 12 miles outside of Boston. I think. So Maybe 21. And the book we're going to be talking about uh, mostly is uh, The First Four Notes, uh, which is about Beethoven, if, uh, if uh, that's news to you. Um, now, I promise not to direct questions at the audience all night, but I did want to kick things off with some pure musical nerdiness uh, with uh, a bit on these first four notes. And I just wanted a show of hands, maybe, on which is the more accurate rendition of the time marking for the Beethoven's fifth. So, all right. Let me get into the rhythm. Huh? Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. Is option one. Option two is. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. Who picks option one? And who picks option two? So, Guerrero, what is the correct answer? It, it is option two. Congratulations. <laughs> we have lovely prizes for you. Um, so, you're right. They, they, all, they all did listen to the disco version. Yeah, so the disco version. Disco version. The fifth of Beethoven? A, a fifth of Beethoven by Walter Murphy, and which, which makes that that um, the fact that it's there's there's an initial rest very clear uh, much more clear than actually many classical performances of it right so for a reminder of the fifth of beethoven it's to be accurate but so really the first note is a rest the first the first thing in the score is is in fact an a rest. rest an eighth rest so a big a big not terribly big, but a little slice of nothing. Which means that, in a sense, couldn't it be called the first five notes? Well, not it's, to edit the title of your book. Yeah, it's not really. It's not really considered a note. It's 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 one of those musical things that that um, it's the fact that it's there is both sort of signaling uh, how to play the piece. It's also a sign that that Beethoven was a professional musician, and so he knew that that any conductor was going to do something right there anyways because they need to know how fast to start playing right. the other three notes in the measure. So, Speaking of conducting and, and the first three notes of the measure, um, as I understand it, it's a bit of a challenge uh, to just get a hundred musicians at the same time to go da-da-da-da exactly it's, at the same time. It's become something rather fraught as time has gone on, which, which I, I find I'd interesting. I put you on the spot. You, you conduct, right? Okay. I, some. I thought um, if we could have the crowd say, da, 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 da. We just put you on the spot and try to get uh, our crowd here tonight. Just to okay, go, you all know da, da, how da. it begins. So, see okay. if we can do this. <laughs> yeah. About half, not too bad. Yeah. So. Um, 
I don't know. I would say keep your day job, but that is yes. your day job. So that's uh, no. Um, so it is. So that, so that is. Uh, so that is one more thing. I guess. Um, one more thing about it that w wimpy conductors will actually like signal how many beats. Well, they'll give you. You, you could do. You could. You could give them a beat before because it's usually conducted. It's conducted really only one beat to a bar because it's so fast. So it would be. So sometimes they'll give you a free bar. They'll go. Here's the free bar. Now you know how fast it goes, and you can start playing. Right. And and it's one of those things that it's the sort of thing that other conductors will regard you as less of a conductor for doing, even though it's it's makes it foolproof. It's one of those things where well, if your job is to get everybody to play together, it's the easiest way to do it. But other conductors will will it's kind of like using training wheels and you know skateboarding with a helmet on. They don't tend to, to score it very highly. So it's become this, 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 odd sort of, this odd sort of contest to see who can do it, you know, with sort of the most grand gesture. But really, it's, it's just a matter of, of, of being direct and sort of hanging on for dear life. Right. And so it, let's take that and, and, and go right into the, into the meat of it, and, and we'll stop the super nerdiness and just... Is that is that very weird beginning uh, uh, to a, to a musical work? Is that part of the genius? Is that is that in itself genius? I think it's it's part of yeah it's part of what makes that piece so singular. Um, at the time, there were there was a sort of a tradition coming out of the classical era of having symphonies begin with these sort of very big grand statements, kind of like the fifth. But usually they had they would they would be very slow. And so, like, there's, there's um, um, a great example is the overture to the Magic Flute by Mozart. Starts with these huge, grand chords, with big fermatas in between them. Sort of like, here we go, ba bum, big pause, ba bum, does that a couple of times, and then it starts in with the faster tempo. So really, I think what's unusual for Beethoven is to just dive right into the fast tempo, and then immediately stop it because then he puts a fermata over the fourth note. So it's, it, it starts off and then it immediately stops and you're wondering what happens and then he does it again and then the piece finally starts up. So right from the beginning, rather than having this very definite, here's the introduction, here's the piece, he starts the piece and then sort of pulls you back into the introduction and so it's, it's, it's a much more sort of disorienting opening and so if it was, if Beethoven's really goal was to, to sort of pull the rug out from under you immediately and grab your attention in that way, then, then it, it succeeds, and, and it really succeeded by the standards of the time, because there weren't many other pieces around that had started in that fashion, in, in just, just, just giving you that, that immediate sense of speed and then immediately pulling it back. Uh, it's so it's so strange. We're so used to hearing it, but it was so strange then that uh, I guess one respected musical teacher of the time said such music should not be written. Such music should, was um, Jean-Francois Lasseur, who was Hector Berlioz's teacher. And when the fifth was first done in France, Berlioz took him to the concert. And 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 as Berlioz told the story later, immediately after the concert, um, Lasseur was so amazed by the piece that he he said that he had trouble finding his head to put his hat on. But then at his lesson the next day, he said, yeah, but you, we really shouldn't be doing that. But of course, Berlioz ignored that because he was Hector Berlioz. But even, and that was, that was 20 years after the piece had been premiered, was when it finally made it to France. And, and even then, it was still, especially for people who had been brought up 
um, on the older music. It was still shocking, just just that that Beethoven would would be that abrupt and that that sort of um, nakedly aggressive with with his music and with with so little trappings and with so few sort of um, um, so little musical cushion in the way of, of melody and, and harmony. It's just such a direct piece of music. So we're, we're breaking this down in part to understand what genius is about. Yeah. We talked about making sense of genius. That is part of it, at least our bias. Uh, and then we're at a science event is to, is to break things down into, yeah. into, its, into its component parts. Is, is that the right way to, to approach the problem here? I think it's, it's, it's a very good way to approach it. I think if you look at, at Beethoven's genius, it's, there's so many different facets to it. Um, for any musician, especially for Beethoven, who started off as a pianist and, and a fairly well-known pianist, there's, there's just physical genius. Playing the piano is an athletic act. And, and we don't often think about it that way, but it really is, it's, just, it's muscles and it's using your body and it's, it's making your body do something on command. So it's very similar to, to sort of athletic genius and just this sheer physical genius. And then to be able to take that knowledge and then first of all, just even to translate it into written instructions takes a certain leap of, of imagination. Most musicians can do it once, once they really master once, once they reach a certain level of mastery with the instrument, most of them naturally try their hand at composing. But, but even that, it's, another, it's sort of another leap, it's another set of connections that the brain needs to make. And, and then, of course, the whole idea of musical genius, music is one of the hardest things in the world to sort of put your finger on. Um, people spend their whole lives just trying to figure out how to do it, how to put a piece of music together, how to sustain an idea for as long as it needs to be sustained, but not too long. Trying to develop that intuition and trying to develop that sense is, for most composers, uh, a lifetime. It's a process of a lifetime. Um, and Beethoven seems to have grasped it fairly early because it's his early music is already very accomplished and very polished and already going beyond what the music of that, that was that he had grown up on, which was primarily um, Bach and Mozart, already going beyond what they had done. So it's, it's almost this, this daisy chain of, of connections that you need to make. You need the physical connection with the instrument, then you need to be able to translate that into a creative act that's in large part away from the instrument, and then you need to be able to not only master the intricacies of that, but be able to see beyond it to, to sort of where it can possibly go. And, and for Beethoven to have all of those relatively early on, I think, is sort of what set him apart from a lot of composers of his time. And the one other aspect of his genius, which we do need to mention, and which was a relatively new thing at, in Beethoven's era, was the genius of making a career out of it. Um, Beethoven very consciously um, manipulated and leveraged his fame which at the time was an unusual thing because the idea that a composer could be famous with the public at large was, was a novelty. And, and one of the things that's interesting is for a lot of his career, Beethoven had this, this very sort of interesting relationship um, with Napoleon because he started off as a fan of Napoleon and then there's a very famous story that 
when Napoleon crowned himself emperor, Beethoven was so disgusted by it that he scratched his name off the Third Symphony, which was originally going to be called the Napoleon Symphony, but he scratched his name off so vigorously that he wore a hole in the paper, and you can still see that today. Um, but then, but even after that, he was still remained somewhat fascinated by Napoleon, and and, and there were there were some some um, it, the break was not complete. But I think a lot of that was because Napoleon too was was sort of the pioneer of of making a name for yourself out of nothing. Um, because it was just being able to find some way to make yourself famous and then to keep leveraging that fame to further and further levels. Uh, we'd sort of take that for granted because we're uh, a celebrity-driven culture, but around the year 1800, that was a new thing, and that was a new skill, and if you follow Beethoven through his career, you can see him really trying to figure that out, and in some cases doing it very well, and in some cases doing it not so well. So, so uh, physical prowess, great intuition, a knack for self-promotion, yep. these, are, these are good things for us to have if we want to become geniuses, and, and, and why not, really? Yes. I, there's no harm in being known as one, uh, I, I figure. So uh, what, about, what about the superstitious side that is pure divine inspiration? The notebooks of Beethoven are famously tortured, he crosses things out, does new things, and Mozarts are supposedly clean as if from heaven. Um, who, who was the greater genius then? Well, the interesting thing is, is most of Mozart's sketches didn't survive because uh, I believe his wife destroyed them, whereas all of Beethoven's sketchbooks survived because people held on to them like these, talis, these, these, you know, these talismanic artifacts. And so we have this image of Beethoven um, my favorite version of it is, is, is Tom Hulse in the movie Amadeus writing a piano concerto while he's bouncing a billiard ball around the pool table and it's just coming out so effortlessly he can be doing one thing with one hand and writing this beautiful piece of music with the other hand almost as if he's just taking dictation from the air. But probably, um, Mozart probably sketched as much as Beethoven did, or at least he certainly must have sketched some of it, and we just don't think of him that way because the sketches didn't survive. Whereas Beethoven, we can track every little sort of iteration of an idea, and so, so we really feel him working the material, and that really contributed towards this, this image of Beethoven as, as, as this, this sort of tortured soul, just trying to, you know, hew music out of the equivalent of, 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 of unforgiving rock. Yeah. Um, so you can agonize and still and you still can be a agonize genius, and, and still be a genius, and, and not get it right the first time. Yeah. Um, and uh, what about the uh, added assist of, of being a, a child prodigy or a near child prodigy? Here, Beethoven had a lot of coaching as a kid. He had this alcoholic father who would beat him when he wasn't playing the piano. That's right. Something like that. Not ideal. That's bad tiger dad parenting, yeah. I guess. It's um, it's <laughs> it's interesting that both Mozart and Beethoven, you know, were were child prodigies and, and became very celebrated musicians in their adulthood, and yet the child prodigy aspect of their existence was probably um, utterly miserable. And it becomes a very difficult problem because you wonder, you know, would Mozart be the Mozart we know him as today if his father, if his father hadn't dragged him and his sister all over Europe at an extraordinarily young age, forcing him to perform for rich people and, and powerful people. Um, certainly, it, it gave him 
an immensely practical knowledge of music from a very early age. He was, he was exposed to all the latest trends. He met all the composers. He heard a ton of music. He knew what it was to perform music in, in pressure situations with other musicians. And this is all extremely valuable information to a composer. And yet at the same time, there's no doubt that both Beethoven and Mozart were profoundly damaged by that experience. And so it's, it's, it becomes a very, I think, dangerous game because it sort of feeds into this idea that, 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 that genius is something that can take difficulty, that can take um, personal suffering and, and transpose it into something transcendent. But, but I kind of think, I like to think that, well, they probably would have produced something transcendent without the suffering. Um, but whether it would have left them sort of put them in a place where we would know about it is a very interesting sort of contrafactual. Right. It's if Mozart hadn't been famous at a young age, would he have ever become famous at all? Right. Uh, what about uh, pure osmosis? That's our favorite way to study. Ideally, we just lie down, yeah. and go to sleep, and let an osmosis in. He was friends, Beethoven was friends with a lot of of other people we now think of as being geniuses, Goethe and, and other contemporaries, is, is that an easy shortcut if, to becoming a genius, if, if, if we want to go that route? I don't think so. I think, um, particularly in Beethoven's case, um, it's actually remarkable how self-possessed and even arrogant he can be when, when, he, was, when he would meet another person of a stature that he considered, you know, equal to his. Um, I think the one thing that, that we see again and again in a lot of composers and a lot of musicians is there will be somebody whose career they can sort of model their own progress after. Um, and I think initially it was um, Beethoven really modeled his career sort of after Mozart's because he went to Vienna where Mozart was celebrated. He made sure to study with Haydn who was a friend of Mozart, and they actually ended up hating each other. And very soon, as soon as he stopped studying with Haydn, um, um, Beethoven stopped mentioning that he had studied with Haydn, but it was enough to sort of make that connection. He sort of saw himself as, as following in those footsteps, so to a certain extent, he literally followed in those footsteps at the beginning. But then really from uh, very early on, he, he realized that he could sort of strike out and start being his own person. And, and being your own person, being an outsider, uh, that seems to be a thread that runs through most genius stories as well. I think part, starting with Beethoven, definitely, because um, that's a very romantic idea. And Beethoven is, of course, contemporaneous with, with the German romantics, and it's, it's the German romantics really sort of adopted Beethoven as their prime example of... of, of what romantic art should be and what a romantic artist should be. But it's this idea that, that the artist or the genius is sort of has a more privileged access to things that are sublime, things that are beyond conventional human understanding. That really starts up around um, Beethoven's time. And the fact that Beethoven himself was so legendarily irascible and antisocial and, and sort of a famously difficult person, I think actually fed, fed that image 
a little bit. If you go into the generation after Beethoven, then you start to see um, this push to its limit where really it's, it's true genius becomes um, implicitly and even explicitly inseparable from madness, which is another great, great romantic idea that, 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 that in madness you, you, you have this access to, to understandings that most people don't. And, and, and in a lot of cases that could, that could almost be considered in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, cause certainly there were, you know, people like, um, Coleridge who flirted with the edges of madness for so much of his life. Um, Schumann who died mad and, and the romantic era that was, that was, they would have considered that as sort of a symptom of genius uh, in a relatively extreme case, but it's sort of like there was this divine madness that, that only geniuses had. And you can see that sort of start with Beethoven. One of my favorite um, stories about, about Beethoven is, of course, Beethoven was very celebrated because he was deaf, which was another way of, you know, he, was, he had shut out the world, and so he could get these, 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 the, this divine inspiration without interference. And in the 1860s, they um, transferred Beethoven to a new tomb because they decided that the tomb he was in was, was not fancy enough for Beethoven. So they collected some money and they, and they moved him to a new grave. But, but before they did, they actually um, did examine the remains. They took photos of, there's photos of Beethoven's skull. That's where those came from. It came from this exhumation in the 1860s. And they noticed that his skull was unusually thick. It's a big, giant head, big, thick skull. And immediately afterwards, Richard Wagner, in his book, a book that he wrote on Beethoven, starts talking about, well, not only was he deaf, his skull was so thick, so the, the world couldn't get in that way either, so he was even more <laughs> divinely inspired because of it. And, and, and not, you know, he meant that in a completely non-ironic way, and we look at it as like, that's unbelievable, but that's, that, that's sort of the romantic, the evolution of this romantic idea of the genius as, as sort of an, an otherworldly figure. It's that taken to its bizarre conclusion in a way. And that's a tough, that's a tough one to follow up on, like thicken up your skull if we're, thicken if up we're your looking skull. to become genius. Yeah, if you want to become a genius. Now, Beethoven uh, seems to have imprisoned subsequent composers. They felt that they couldn't get out from under his shadow. Even even Brahms felt that way, and and that happened too with with Wagner. I guess people wrote books about how to get uh, get out of Wagner's shadow. Why why these guys or why Beethoven? Why why couldn't people escape him? There were a lot of there are a lot of other people yeah. who still listen to and enjoy. Beethoven. I always think of it's a lot of it is because he was on the ground floor of Romanticism. I think about Romanticism a lot because I think especially culturally, even today, we live the way we think about culture and the way we interact with culture is still in ways that largely began with the Romantic era. So, you know, we, we think about artists and we make, we sort of, like, we take an artist's work and we'll separate it into sort of like, well, they just did that for the money, but this is a really personal thing. They did this, you know, it's got some autobiographical import to them, and so it's, it's somehow more important than the stuff they're just doing for money. Um, that's a Romantic idea right there. And, and so I think that because we still live in this, this 
cultural world in which these echoes of romanticism still ring fairly strong, I think that's why Beethoven has always been somewhat unescapable, um, because he was the exemplar. He was the one who pointed the way. And he also became really one of the first composers to be canonized in the sense that orchestras always play Beethoven. And, and that really started in fairly early on, but really by the late 19th century, any professional orchestra in the world, a large part of the repertoire was still the Beethoven symphonies, and so, to a lesser extent, Beethoven's concertos. And, and so it's, it was always there in a way that I think previous generations, it wasn't always there. There were, you know, for example, in Mozart's day, um, musicians knew Bach's music and, and, and they revered it and they studied it, but it wasn't always being performed all the time. And in fact, it really didn't start to get performed again until, until about the middle of the 19th century. And so they could learn the music and they could learn from the music, but it wasn't also sort of their taking up the, the, the space that otherwise they would occupy. So I think Beethoven really starts that. And then, of course, everything, the amount of intellectual attention that was paid to Beethoven, well, Wagner, you can multiply that by 10, because Wagner, first of all, was such a powerful, both a powerful intellectual and an unusually powerful pseudo-intellectual um, in, in the way that just he wrote about what he was doing and what he thought everyone else should do. So he had this corpus, not only of music, but this corpus of, of, of writings and teachings from the master that everyone had to deal with. And so between those two figures, yeah, that was, that was a huge hangover for music that lasted well into the 20th century and in some cases still persists a little bit. Um, so t today we have a lot of, of literature. We have a lot of we have neuroscience working in our favor. We have uh, uh, lots of studies that are uh, looking into what constitutes creativity, what constitutes genius, how to unfold or unleash the, the, the genius within, how to improve your techniques on everything from learning to play the piano, what age do you exactly start, yeah. what are the brain windows, and yet uh, that age produced Beethoven, and we, we've, we've, had some pretty, we've had some pretty impressive geniuses in our time, but we haven't had, musically, we don't seem to have had a Beethoven recently. Uh, what's, what's wrong with us? <laughs> well, I think, um, partially, I think, I don't, I don't know if the cultural world will ever produce a figure like Beethoven again. When you think about it, Beethoven was incredibly famous in his day, but that's only because he could encompass the entire scope of the area in which he could become famous. It was a relatively smaller circle. And, and, and whereas today it's, you know, I could listen to music 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there would still be countless genres I would never be able to get to the bottom of. There's just so much more stuff out there today than there was in Beethoven's time, um, just, just exponentially more more niches, exponentially more styles that are still in play. So I think there probably are geniuses of Beethoven's level out there, but they just they will not become the sort of overpowering universal figure that Beethoven did. And I think that's in some ways it's it's people kind of look at that as we've lost something, but on the other hand, I 
tend to think of it as, as just our cultural life has gotten that much richer, um, which is both, it can be a bit of a fearsome aspect because there's just so much of it, but it also means there's just so much more creative activity that's, that's becoming manifest. Uh, one thing that uh, some of us enjoy doing at certain art exhibits uh, is, is going looking at paintings and saying, oh, I could do that. Um, <laughs> it's one of the more annoying refrains. As you were working on this and, and you had to obsess over these four notes, da 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 da, did you ever think to yourself, That's, these are good notes, but I could do that? <laughs> well, but I didn't. And I think that's, the always, that's always my, my both facetious and very deep response to the anybody could do that criticism is, but, but one person did. Somebody had to do it. Um, I think partially it's, the interesting thing about Beethoven's Fifth in particular is the opening motive becomes famous because of the power of the symphony and not the other way around. And we, that's something that we don't really consider today because everybody knows the opening. Even if you don't know the symphony, you know the opening if you're reasonably cultural, culturally literate. Um, but really, that's reversing the way that the piece sort of made its impact originally. It made its impact because it was such a forceful piece of music as a whole that people didn't really know what to do with it. It's interesting that, that in Beethoven's time, really, it's the end of the Fifth Symphony that was considered the most um, famous part of it. It's what people knew the piece for. It was this piece that started in minor, but it had this huge triumphant um, major key finale. And that's what people thought was so exciting about the piece. Um, and it's only really as the piece stayed in the repertoire and more and more people were sort of coming to it because it wasn't going anywhere, um, that it sort of becomes known for this, this opening, opening little phrase. I mean, that was a big part of it from the beginning, but it was always people, people were just amazed that he could take something so, so, so plebeian in a way and build this huge edifice out of it because it's, it's all the repetitions of it throughout the piece and all the counterpoint that's built out of it throughout the piece is what really um, impressed them. There's an interesting um, notion that comes from Theodore Adorno, who was a philosopher and also a very good musician, but primar primarily known as a philosopher in the first half of the 20th century. He was the um, leading sort of aesthetic thinker of what's called the Frankfurt School, which was a very hardcore, um, serious, uh, somewhat Marxist, very Germanic school of philosophy. Um, but, but he thought very hard about music, and, 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 he, and he worried very hard about, about culture. And he worried very hard about the way people interacted with culture as technology changed the way we interacted with culture. And he always thought that one of the worst things that had ever happened to the Fifth Symphony was that everybody knew the motive. He thought everybody knows people, I think the way he put it was, was people only listen to the Fifth Symphony as a series of quotations from the Fifth Symphony. And the reason he thought that, and this is a really complicated idea, but the reason he thought that is because he thought that, that really the initial motive represented the philosophical equivalent of nothing. It was just, he was starting from nothing. He was starting with so little that, that the fact that he could build this entire symphony out of what seems like nothing was actually sort of tied him in with this very German school of philosophy in which you explain existence um, by relating to the fact that, that you create your own existence simply by being. And it's a very hard thing to get your brain around. 
And but but it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> I always I always think it's like this this is probably something better considered under to the accompaniment of whatever substance you happen to enjoy. But it's interesting that that that's really what he was thinking was was this is nothing and he really considered it that and he considered that the greatest thing about the piece was that that Beethoven starts from nothing and he's able to create the symphony that 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 almost brings itself into being just through the fact of of the way the way it sort of goes forward in time from nothing and he thought that the way we listen to it and the way that we consider this well we, everybody knows the motive and we hear it he thought that actually really diminished the piece in in a way that that um, um, said something not very nice about the modern world. Well, I, and I, I, is it not similar to the way we see the Mona Lisa as it's that famous painting? Absolutely. That everyone wants to. In and yet there are audiences for whom it still has that shocking freshness. Uh, you note that in China in the early seventies. Uh, a visiting orchestra, I forget which one, was going to perform the fifth, and the Chinese got panicked about the fifth, and like, Let, let's do the sixth. Uh, yes. Um, clearly, in, in that case, it, it, it had not lost its power to shock. Um, yeah, that's what, actually, that's, that was, yes, it ran afoul of the Cultural Revolution, um, particularly Madame Mao. And, and why the fifth and, and not the sixth? The sixth, sixth, sixth is a great piece. Well, in... Interestingly, it's because of the fifth's accumulated history, because of the story that attached itself to the opening of the symphony, which is which is the um, not quite proven and, in my own personal opinion, probably extremely false, but very well-known story that supposedly Beethoven called the opening of the fifth symphony "Fate Knocking at the Door," and so it became a symphony about fate. And it turns out that. In China, in the late 60s and early 70s, talking about fate was a fairly dangerous thing because it put you in a philosophically dangerous position vis-a-vis -vis the long legacy of Confucianism, which, of course, the Cultural Revolution was trying to go against. And so, believe it or not, that's why they nixed the fifth. And, and to the point, I, th I believe... Um, it might have been the Philadelphia Orchestra came to China to play it, and, and they told them at the last minute, oh, it's, no, it's like, no, you can't do that. And so they had to go scramble and try and find, go through some, some, some dusty libraries of music in China, I believe, and try and find parts to the sixth so they could play it instead. But it was just the idea that, that, that it had gotten this history of fate attached to it that, that immediately that became, that became a tripwire because of the very strange confluence of intellectual and political events in China at that particular time. Um, to, to bring it back to, to genius for a moment, and, and the very, we've gone through some of the various aspects of genius, including having a thick skull, um, yes. but being a child <laughs> prodigy, but also, uh, but in, in more seriously, uh, practicing a lot, doing the work, um, uh, learning the craft, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and this is mainly an excuse to quote from an ad that you quote for, uh, um, uh, uh, from an ad for uh, wine in, in, in the 70s, I guess it would have been, uh, which used the Fifth Symphony. It took Beethoven four years to write that symphony. Some things can't be rushed. Good music and good wine. Palmasant's Emerald Dry, a delicious white wine. Yes. Um, uh, three years. Uh, four years. Four years. Four years. That's That's... Very long uh, for 
symphonies in, in those days when, when you have people yeah. like Haydn writing 100 and Mozart writing 30. Um, is, is that part of genius, being just slow and, and plotting? It can be. Um, I think it's certainly a big part of Beethoven's genius. The four years is a little misleading because, because that's dated from the first sketches we have for the Fifth Symphony, which he actually just jotted down, but he was busy working on another. He was working on both the, the Third Symphony and Fidelio at the time. So, so multitasking. He was is multitasking. The is, the, is the secret. And, and Beethoven multitasked his entire life, and he was always just jotting down ideas. Um, but, I mean, there is, we see in Beethoven, perhaps clearer than in any other composer, just, just the sheer amount of working out that, that composition involves. And that I think that genius involves, is you have to just sit down and, and basically um, do your homework, or, or in sort of the, the, musical, the musical jargon of that is you have to go to the woodshed and just, just, just do your work, because it's you have to have the craft and you have to have the, the, the tools to, to realize it. As there's a great story about Maurice Ravel, the composer, who would, ju who would just go, he composed at the same time every day. And for a set, he was like going to the office, he would do it every day. And, and somebody asked him, you know, and a lot of, most of it he would write, and he was a tremendously slow composer, tremendously slow. And most of it he would write and throw away. And, um, Someone once asked him, was like, well, why, do you, you know, why don't you take a day off? You're not getting anything done. He's like, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, someday inspiration is going to visit, and I need to be around when it happens. And, and I think that's sort of the, the comic way to put it, but it's when you look at people who are considered geniuses, they put in the work. They, they were just there doing it all the time. Um, uh, there's a great story about James Joyce, I have no idea if this story is true, but I've loved it ever since I heard it, where somebody visited him, and he was working on Finnegan's Wake, and somebody visited him, and he's like, how's it going? And James said, well, I wrote, I wrote six words today. <laughs> Which, and the person said, wow, that's great, because that was great for James Joyce. He's like, yeah, but I don't know what order they go in. So, but he was there, you know, sitting at the desk, or at least sitting in the cafe with his notebook, and, 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 and I think, Genius is sort of this mysterious thing. And, and, but when we talk about genius, I think we need to talk about two things, because we talk about just, just the inspiration or the talent or, or, or the gift or the, the weird mysterious thing that we can't get, put a finger on. But then there's the fact that you have to produce something, because otherwise, who would know? You wouldn't even know. So it's this, the example of putting in the work, you know, the idea of putting in the work is, is I think it's the one constant that you see Throughout, throughout all different kinds of genius, across scientific genius, um, musical, literary, political, what have you. They do their homework, and, and, and you show up, and, and you do the work, and because that's what sort of gives you the tools to, to be ready to, to produce a work of genius. So, um, I mean, Beethoven, I think Beethoven was, would have been a genius no matter what, but if he hadn't you know, learn to play the piano if he hadn't been in there with a, with a pen and paper every day, banging his head against the desk. It, it, even he wouldn't have known what, what he could do. So I think Beethoven is actually, that's I think the one great example of his genius is it's, it's there's no shortcuts to it. It reminds me of an of, of, of a interview with David Byrne that I recently read where he said something very similar uh, I, I, about trying to write songs every day uh, 
because if, if the bus is going to come, I have to be at the stop. Yep. Um, uh, and uh, so I guess that, that has remained also a constant. Yeah. Yeah. Is it the, uh, another story about George Gershwin where um, Andre Castellanitz, the conductor, once asked him, it's like, how do you write so many great songs? He's like, easy, I write 16 a day, and that way I get the bad ones out of my system. <laughs> um, at this point, we are going to throw open uh, the questions. Dulce uh, over here will we'll give it's you instructions. Time to turn. It's time to turn it over to all of you for questions. If you do have one, there are two of us going around with microphones. Just raise your hand. And if you could please come meet us in the aisle. Say your first and last name. This is being recorded. It's going to be up on our website by tomorrow morning so you can share with all of your friends who couldn't be here tonight. First question. Too. All right. Uh, Warren Edwin, uh, just in response to your last question or last statement, you give the impression that genius is just hard work, and it is. But I know a lot of people who work very hard all the time, and they don't produce genius quality uh, work materials. So, what is the difference? What makes genius? Well, I think I think the point I was trying to make is the hard work is is what brings it forth. We know somebody is a genius because they've done the hard work to, to sort of make, make it possible for the genius to come forth. What it actually is, I often think that it's, um, it's hard to pinpoint because there's so many different kinds, but in a lot of ways it's just the ability, um, which is both an innate ability and can also be a learned ability, to make connections and to be able to see connections that aren't immediately obvious and be able to see connections that, that other people don't see. Um, that, at least to me, it's sort of, you know, when I, when I see something, I consider, wow, that's genius. That's a work of genius. That's an amazing thing. It's because there's some connection that the person creating it has made that I would have not seen in the material, or I wouldn't have seen it in the subject, or I wouldn't have seen that possibility in, in, in just the, the raw materials that they started with. And, and it's being able to not only make that connection, but to able to show you what it is. And just say, well, look at this. And it seems very simple, but, but I think some of those connections are so profound um, that, that just being presented with them, it sort of opens up a little bit of a perceptual window that wasn't there before. And, and a lot of times, it's, it's, there are a, a lot of works of genius that I consider to be works of genius, that it took me a few tries to sort of see it. Um, I think uh, one in particular, there's a piece by, um, since he just passed away, a piece by Elliot Carter. It's his um, Concerto for Orchestra, which is tremendously, fiercely dense mass of music. And I remember just spending time with it as a composition student as just, and just as a musical fan, because I've always loved his music, and I thought, this is a really hard nut to crack. There's something there, but I don't know what it is. And then finally, um, it was a few summers ago, out of Tanglewood, I heard a really good performance of it that just, and, and it, just, it just coalesced everything. You know, it's, I knew what the piece was, I had known the score, but it coalesced what he was trying to do. And once you sort of felt what he was trying to do, which is sort of this, this, this way of making you pay attention not only to what's happening in the music, but just really forcing your attention to how the music is going in time, and just the ways he's making the music 
constantly redirect your attention to that aspect of it. And it was the first time I'd ever heard it that clearly, and I thought, that's what it is. That's why I kept coming back to it. Um, but it's just making that connection, being able to see how he could take the material and take the technique and, and redirect and use it to put your direction on this, put your attention on this one aspect of music that, that is so hard in, in a lot of ways to, to, to realize and put front and center and, and make expressive in the way that he made it. And, and so I think it's, it's that combination, it's that connection which he saw, but again, he had the technique and he put in the hard work to make sure that, that it came out and it came forth. And, and in that case, it wasn't even, it went beyond his hard work. It was, it was the fact of having a group of musicians who did their own hard work. It's tremendously hard work to play that piece and to, and to get it right. And they put in the work and they brought their own individual sets of, of, you know, their own individual hours and hours and hours of practice in order to realize it. And it's sort of, once you see it all come together, then, then, then it's sort of the indescribable part of it comes to the fore. But, but, but it, it can be so hard to bring that to the fore sometimes. And, and it's, it's, I think part of genius is, is seeing the connection that'll make that happen. So. Question on your left. Hi, Jamie Kern. Um, my question is in relation to the insight, which I've enjoyed that you brought to the talk today on Beethoven's character. If you were to listen in, and since this is about creativity or uh, genius and Beethoven, what would his comments be on him being labeled genius? How would he feel about it? And what would the rationale be for his answer to whether or not he is genius? Um, I think my guess is he probably would have scolded you for calling him a genius, but he would have agreed with you. <laughs> um, the only, the only story I know of this, there probably are others, but there's a story, there's, it's not a story, it's, it's, it's captured, because after, one of the fun things about Beethoven is after he went deaf, he would, he would have con conversations with, people would write questions for him. So we have these records of basically half the conversation with Beethoven. So it's like, you know, sitting around talking with Beethoven, we actually know what he was talking about. And there's one conversation where his nephew actually um, is telling him that, that, that um, you know, you're famous, you know, one of the big reasons you're famous is because everybody knows that you're deaf, and this has been a great thing, because everyone, it sort of makes you a celebrity. And, and on that occasion, it's, we have some, based on sort of the responses that we have, it seems like Beethoven sort of smacked him down a little. Um, but not really saying that, no, I'm not really a genius, it was just saying, I think it's more than that is probably what he was saying. It's sort of you're sort of over determining in it, but um, he was an incredibly proud person. Um, he knew how good he was. Um, often at times when um, he wasn't having a lot of success, he still knew um, how good he was. But a lot of a lot of his reaction, he's just such a famously cranky person, and so much of his reaction is like he hated critics. Um, uh, people who were giving him money, he had no real respect for them, even though they were like keeping him, you know, fed. Um, but I think it's it's all he knew. He, I think he had he had a feeling that he was a genius, but that that it he also had um, this image of it being very hard won for himself, and so I think he protected it very jealously, and I think a lot of his irascibility 
um, comes out of that. Was, this is one thing I hadn't realized, when, hadn't thought about when I wrote the book, but, but of course, for many years, he, he tried to keep the fact that he was going deaf secret because he was just starting out. He first noticed it very soon after he arrived in Vienna. He was trying to make a career. He was trying to become known as a musician. And, and, and so and he realized that his hearing was starting to go. It took a very long time for it to finally go, but it started off very early. And he was desperate to keep it secret. And, and most people think, and I always thought it was because, well, he didn't want, you know, he didn't want that derailing his musical career. But I also think what I realized later was he might really have also not wanted to become sort of a novelty act because he didn't want to just be known as, oh, yeah, he's that guy who can play piano even though he's deaf. Because I think he already had this, this, this sense of what he could do and this ambition behind it, and he didn't want to derailing that either. So I think I think I think he knew that that he was he was um, I think he knew how good he was. Question on your left. Hi, Les Holland. I listen with pen and paper. So my question is, did I get most of it? <laughs> In order, your characteristics of a genius are singular, disorienting, shocking, aggressive, outsider, on the ground floor, creates an exemplar canonized, gets intellectual attention, history attack, multitasks, and sees news connections. Uh, we left out Freemason. Uh, we Free, yeah, we didn't talk the, about Freemasonry. Series. Um, I think if you could get all that, you'd be well on your way. Um, <laughs> the, one, the, one, the, one, the one thing that I think most people would demur about is, is the shocking and disorienting part which has become, of course, over the past two centuries, and again, for this, we can largely blame the romantics, um, it's become such an important part of, of perceiving genius. And we, per, you know, it's sort of like, well, is, is it, you know, does it have the shock of the new? And Beethoven's music certainly had the shock of the new. Um, but I think, for me, although I love music that is shockingly new, and I always have, um, I, I love new music, I love modernism, I love atonality, the crazier the better. Um, I just, I, it puts me in my happy place. But there are also an awful lot of composers that, that I think really are geniuses who don't seem to be doing anything particularly new or shocking. But they're just, they're, they're doing it in such a way that they're making a connection that you never really saw before. Um, somebody like Francis Poulenc, one of my desert island composers. and and. Even in a lot of his pieces, it doesn't really seem like he's doing anything that even he himself hasn't already done in some other piece. He seems to be quoting from himself all the time. But he, he's sort of, he's, he's getting at this sort of mood and he's getting at this sort of way of that music can unfold in a way that's, that really is quite new and, and, and do, isn't like anybody else, but is doing so in sort of a very gentle and a very sort of misleadingly sort of insouciant way. So you don't necessarily need to be shockingly new. I think you do still need to come up with something new, but you can sort of, you can, you can sugarcoat it a little and, and you, can, you can still get a genius, so. Before we move on to our last question, I wanna again invite you all to join us at our reception. It'll be immediately behind those doors back there, so please join us. Changing Hands is here selling copies of Matthew Gary's The First Four Notes, Beethoven's Fifth, and The Human Imagination. 
I'd also like to thank uh, Ed Finn and the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University for co-presenting tonight's program. Now our last question. Hi, my name is Jose Solomon. My question is, will you be a musician, a director, how, how, how do you think, how much different would music be today if Beethoven had not been there? So in relation to how much a genius makes a difference in our, in our society, how, do you think music would have been very, very much different? I don't, well, I have a feeling that, that a Beethoven-like figure would have come along. Because a, a lot of Beethoven's fame was not his doing. A lot of it was. But a lot of it wasn't. A lot of it was the fact that, that, that intellectual life in Europe had reached a point where the people who sat around and really just thought deep thoughts all day had to come to terms with aesthetics, which is basically how we relate to art, how we relate to beauty. Um, the romantics, sort of the, the philosophical program that they had been bequeathed had come largely from people like Kant, Immanuel Kant, who had created this amazing philosophical edifice. But it really just seemed to hit a brick wall when it came to um, the way that we interact with something simply because it's beautiful, simply because it gives us pleasure. And the romantics were trying to come up with language that um, could express that. Um, and they adopted Beethoven as a great example of it. If Beethoven hadn't been around, they probably would have found somebody else to adopt, I think. I'd, it's, I think they got lucky in that I don't know if it would have been a composer as good as Beethoven was. So it's hard to say. I think, I think music probably would have gone in slightly different directions, but, but Beethoven just crystallized a lot of trends that were already happening. Um, he was crystallizing um, the increasing importance of instrumental music. He was crystallizing this idea of a composer being a, a, a famous figure to the public at large. And in the fact that, that this music was being presented to the public at large rather than just to a, a particular aristocratic and wealthy audience. Um, and, I think, and I think that that form of creativity, because, because it, it fits so well with what the romantics were trying to do philosophically, and in turn, that whole movement became just so important intellectually, even in the United States. Um, you know, what we think of as New England transcendentalism, that's basically transplanted, that's, that's somewhat bastardized, transplanted German romanticism. And so, you know, those ideas were here too. Beethoven was really convenient for them. Um, so I, I have a feeling that music probably would have been in a similar place, um, but it's interesting to consider like who else composers would have spent a hundred years trying to get out of, out from under the shadow of if it wasn't for Beethoven and how that would have changed their reaction to it because I think it might have pushed it in slightly different directions. Um, but it's, it's, it's very difficult to think about things like this, but I love thinking about things like that. Just, <laughs> I love to. Uh, well, thank you very much, Matthew Guerreri. Uh, we hope that you will join us uh, for wine. Zocalo, like Palmasan, serves no wine before it's time, uh, so we can vouch for the quality. It's time. And uh, <laughs> let us please give uh, Mr. Guerreri a round of applause and a thank you for, for Thank you. Here. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Phoenix.